Amen. Praise the Lord. That was amazing. Good morning, church. It is uh, great to have the opportunity to come up here and be able to share with you and to be able to share that video with you all. Uh, that's just going to be a preview. We had 11 of our saints uh, make the faith-filled decision to carve out a week of uh, their time to be able to uh, give their time, their bodies, their hearts, and their souls to be a part of serving others and to be a part of changing lives in the Dominican Republic. And in light of that, I, I think we're going to have some amazing things in store for you. After church today, we're going to have a time where we're able to celebrate and share the stories of what God during, did during that time. Over 700 salvations. That's incredible. Praise the Lord. And, um, and then to have you all envision what it might look like if we were to be a part, if you were to be a part of next year's trip. So we had the chance to join with four other churches this time through, and it was just an incredible experience. And I hope you guys all plan to stay after church today for a bit and uh, to be able to share in the joy and in those stories with us. So with that, uh, my name is Frank. I am one of the pastors here at Awaken Church. You have the privilege of being able to serve this incredible body of saints. And before we dive into what we're going to do today, I just want to let you know we don't usually do the lost and found stuff so publicly, but it's a wallet. And a found it in church sitting on the floor. It has a dollar left in I mean, it has a dollar in it um, <laughs> and a Chick-fil-A gift card. And so if this belongs to anyone, like right off the hop, I didn't want to just toss it into, is it really yours? Oh, it's not really. It, does it belong to anyone for reals? It has this really interesting picture in it of people that I'm like, it's hard to recognize. But no one claims it. All right. If you hear of anyone who's lost a wallet, it is going to be in our office or in Josiah's hands for a little bit. So we will keep it there and keep your dollar safe and Chick-fil-A gift card safe as well. So anyway, as a church, uh, we're in the book of Habakkuk. And I get to be up here to kind of share, to follow up on how Andrew has spent the past two weeks leading us into this book with an introduction and then chapter one. And so if any of you happened to miss last week or miss both weeks, and I'll give you a quick little recap. So first of all, Habakkuk is this little book found in the Old Testament written by, quote unquote, one of the minor prophets. And even though on the outside, it seems like it's one of those small little books, it's a small book that has a big punch. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he's also a musician. Um, and this book is rather unique in the sense that not only is it written from his gift set and skill set, but it's also written as a conversation between man and God, a conversation between Habakkuk and his Lord. And conversation might actually be a bit of a generous word. Habakkuk is having a conversation with God. He's complaining to God. He's maybe even whining just a little bit to God. We can all relate to that, right? Because we complain to God and maybe even whine to God all the time. Here is the difference between when we do that versus when Habakkuk does here. When we do that, it's usually private, right? I don't want you to know what I complain about with God, and you certainly don't want me to know what you're complaining about with God. That's a private conversation to have. 
And the amazing part about serving our Lord God is that we can have these private conversations wherever we are because God is everywhere. He hears everything. And even more than that, we can have this conversation with God without even speaking a word because he knows what's going on in our minds. He knows the intention of our hearts. So we can at any time have a private conversation, a private complaint session with God. And what makes the story in this book of Habakkuk really interesting is Habakkuk's private prayer is inscribed in the scriptures for everyone to read forever. And what is Habakkuk complaining about? That our nation sucks. That is what Habakkuk is complaining about. Our nation sucks. Lord, why does it always seem like it's the bad people and the wicked people who prosper while the good people suffer? Lord, why do we live in a world where we have to lock our doors at night and we can't feel safe anywhere we go? Not at school, not in our workplace, not in the streets, not in the malls, not in the church. If there's anything that these past few years have taught us is we're not safe anywhere from wicked people or terrorists. God, please do something about the wickedness in our world and with our people and with our nation. That is Habakkuk's first prayer that Andrew covered in chapter one. And then God answers. God answers Habakkuk's prayer and says, watch, I'm going to do something and you're not even gonna believe what I'm going to do. Habakkuk, I'm going to bring a nation that's even more wicked than Judah. And they're going to come in and torment you, destroy you, and laugh at you. And that leads us into Habakkuk's second prayer, which also kicks off in chapter 1, where basically Habakkuk says, wait, what? <laughs> that's his response. What? Why would you do that? I, you are a good God. You're God who loves us. Why would you choose to use a nation even more wicked than to, than to destroy and to torment and torture us? Discipline us yourself, Lord. That doesn't make any sense at all. So that's what has happened up until this point. And so as we dive into chapter 2, this is where we pick up the story starting in verse 1. Habakkuk is finishing up his second prayer, second complaint to the Lord. And this is what it says. He says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. So I'm not calling him a complainer. He's saying that that's what he is. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. There's a lot in this passage, and there's two things in particular I want to make sure that we note in this conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's important to note if we're to understand how this book is framed. First, Habakkuk cries out to God, and then afterwards he says, all right, I'm going to go back, I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to wait attentively until you respond. He climbs up to the watchtower, and he takes his post. This is important for us 
not to miss if we want to learn from this book. God gives vision to the watchman. God gives vision to the watchman. God's vision and his response to us comes when we cry out to God and then continue in our faithful service to the Lord while attentively listening to and for his response. To attentively listen and wait in the midst of faithfulness. This, is, uh, this has been a year where, as a church, since the beginning of the year, since January, we have, as your pastors and as your leaders, been training our church, training you, church, to do exactly that. Training the church, training Awaken on how to listen to God. How to be able to discern his voice in the midst of all the noise. How to be able to discern God's truth when there are so many different lies out there. That is what we have been doing. To, and so basically, is, if we were to frame it the way Habakkuk does, we have spent this entire year up until this point training you, church, to be watchmen. And what I love about Habakkuk and what he emphasizes in this, that maybe we haven't emphasized enough and should, is that listening to God, this exercise of hearing God speak and hearing God's voice is not a passive activity. It's an activity that happens in the midst of our fruitful labor for him. So less like monk in meditation on a mountainside and more like soldier on the battlefield, anxiously hearing and listening for his general's orders. Does that make sense? That's the first thing that I hope you all note from this passage, that if we cry out to God and we want to hear him respond, we listen attentively in the midst of faithfulness. Second, God clarifies to Habakkuk that when you're listening, here's what you listen for. Vision. Vision has certain key qualities that God describes here that makes it, that helps it define itself as being vision, right? First, vision is clear. And it's necessary to be clear so it can be passed down to others. Secondly, vision is future focused. It looks at what is to come and does not look with regret on what has passed. Vision is clear. Vision is future-focused. And then vision also requires, it might seem slow in coming, but be patient. It requires patience. It will happen at its right time. So can I share an example of how this is played out in our church so that you can understand, okay, what is it that God is communicating to Habakkuk? So uh, most of you, if not all of you in here, know that our church has been talking about church planting for since our 10-year anniversary, which is a, a bit less than two years ago. If you're part of our LDP or, or part of our LDP leadership crew, you've actually been hearing about this conversation for even longer than that. And basically what this entails is as the pastors of your church and, as, and different key leaders, as we've been seeking the Lord about where you're taking Awaken we believe that God is leading us into church planting in the near future. And I know there's so many crazy parts of that vision that we're not going to have the time to go into today. But that's a vision that we have shared with you all multiple times now. And what we've been learning as a church, what we needed to learn as a church, is that when we cry out to God and when we seek God, 
with the anticipation of him answering. There is a proper way to go about doing that. And here in Habakkuk outlines what that proper way looks like. It begins with having a right posture, right? That we are going to be, um, as we listen, we are still going to be faithful to what God has already commanded us to do. And that's what we've been doing as a church. We haven't said, this is the dream, this is the vision. Now we're just going to sit on our hands until God comes down from his mountain and speaks in clarity into us. No. We understand as a church that God is already given us commands on what we are to do, and we are going to be faithful to those while we attentively listening. That's the right posture to have. And then it's about discerning vision, and that's what we've done as well, right? We start off by saying vision is clear, and what we've been intentional about doing as leaders is whatever God makes clear, we're passing on to you. There's still a lot of things that are not clear, but that's not on us, right? That's, we, we're waiting. Second, Vision is future-focused, and that's what we've been doing, is looking ahead at what God is going to do and thinking about how we can prepare now for what is to come. And then finally, being patient and discerning the Lord's timing. And I get it. This is a really tough one. There are a number of you in this room that have gotten a bit impatient and said, all right, because you're practically minded. This world has taught us to be practical and to look at next steps, and if there seems like there isn't movement, then something's going wrong. I just want to remind you, and I, I fall into that trap just as much as anyone else. I think it's a good reminder, church, to say that waiting patiently for the Lord to respond in his time is a key part of what it means to discern his vision. And if that still doesn't rest comfortably with us, then maybe we should go ahead and move to the next verse. And the next verse says, look at the proud they trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. That's a great reminder, is it not? The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. That's the New Living Translation. Uh, most other translations would actually uh, say the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. That should be a familiar passage, a familiar line. It's actually found, uh, it's a, one of the, passages of the Old Testament scripture that's quoted multiple times by New Testament authors. As a matter of fact, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Once in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul uses this passage when he talks about the power of God to accomplish his salvation, both for Jews and for non-Jews, Gentiles, right? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That is the first time he quotes, uh, Paul quotes this passage, that the righteous shall live by faith. In Galatians 3, Paul quotes it again, saying the righteous shall live by faith, and reminding people that you should not put your hope in the law. Try, uh, putting your faith in the law to save you, to make you right with God, is useless. You are cursed if that's how you think. The righteous live by faith. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the author uses this passage, the righteous shall live by faith, as a reminder of what is needed, the patient endurance necessary to live this life of faith and to do God's will. Patient endurance. And then right after this passage, he takes us into Hebrews 11, which for those who have read the book of Hebrews and studied the book of Hebrews know that's often called the hall of faith. It's this extended look into what faith is and then a look into lives that have been faithful, who God commends for their faith. Look at the proud. They trust themselves and their lives are crooked. 
but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. The righteous shall live by faith. We could spend our entire morning here, but I don't want you to miss what comes next in the book of Habakkuk, because this is really going to be fun and fascinating. God shifts in his conversation with Habakkuk from wait to warn. From wait to warn. Verse 5, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? Even mockery and insinuations against him and say dot, dot, dot. We're going to get into what God says in just a minute. But this is God continuing his response to Habakkuk. And remember, the response is, God, you're good and you're just. Why would you choose to use a more wicked nation to discipline us? And God begins his response by saying that this is a vision. I'm showing you what's going to happen next. It might seem a bit slow in coming, but trust me, it's coming. And then God contrasts the wicked from the righteous. And he says the wicked and arrogant are, I'm sorry, the wicked are arrogant, they are greedy, they are never satisfied. The wicked will always want more. And then God speaks next, right? Well, the rest of the chapter is going to be built around this idea of what's called a taunt song. Taunt songs are actually an interesting genre of writing in the Bible that if you're like me, you've never heard of until this morning, actually until the past week or so. Habakkuk 2, first of all, just to give you an idea of what a taunt song is, Habakkuk 2 isn't the only place where taunt songs are talked about. In the book of Job, as he's going through his suffering, he actually says uh, that my friends are writing and singing these taunt songs about me and my suffering. Uh, in the book of Micah, in the book of Isaiah, and of course here in Habakkuk 2, there are also examples of taunt songs given to us. This one is actually sung, in a sense, from the lips of God, which really makes it kind of interesting. So, and the reason why this is fascinating is, first of all, I want you to remember, I want to remind you all that the scriptures are God's word, right? Spoken to us through people, through uh, prophets and leaders and pastors. And when God's word is spoken through people, God has chosen in the scriptures to use their own unique personality and voice to be able to express his heart. And the reason why this is relevant is because Habakkuk is not only a prophet, but he's also a what? A musician. So it shouldn't be any surprise that there's going to be some element of song in this because for those of you who are musicians, this is how you live, right? You think in verse. Life is a musical where you can pop in a song at any time, right? That's not really true. I just think that's what musicians are like. So anyway, <laughs> a musician. So uh, if you know me, I, I, I have no musical talent at all. I can't clap in rhythm, which is why you don't want to be around me when I'm clapping. So I only clap when I see someone else clapping, and I just follow them, right? So I'm like a tiny step behind them because I need the brain. So anyway, I'm not, and I don't really listen to a lot of music. I do have a soft spot for 80s and 90s music, and so I do listen to that. But all the rest of this, not really. And so, uh, but if you were to pin me up against a wall, 
and torture me and torment me, I would probably have to admit that one of my favorite artists is Taylor Swift. I know, that's so sad. But if you look at my playlist, I've got a lot of Taylor Swift songs, which my kids really, really know about. And now, sadly, so does everyone in this church. But there's a point to this, right? What I love about Taylor Swift is that she is fun, she's charming, she's adorable, and she is savage. Is she not? You do not want to cross Taylor Swift because she is an assassin. She will kill you, and her weapon of choice is her music. She is an assassin whose weapon of choice is her music, and in a playful manner, in a fun manner, she shreds her target, usually a boy or some guy who has offended her recently. And the reason why we love her music is because even though I have nothing against Joe Jonas or any of our other boyfriends, I can relate. I listen to her music and I can get savage in my head in this sweet, happy tone against people who have insulted me or offended me. And that's how we can relate. That's how we can connect to her music. She says things that we would like to say but can't. And she does it in a way that seems really nice and fun, so it's almost like a backhanded slap. And we're like, gosh, I wish I could do that too. That's what Taylor Swift does. She has turned revenge songs into its own little genre. Okay? But, and so if you understand who Taylor Swift is and what she does, then you'll understand that Habakkuk's, what, what Habakkuk writes about God's response to him is like an ancient world's Taylor Swift. That is who Habakkuk is. And that's the best way I know how to describe what this genre of taunt song looks like. And so in Habakkuk's taunt song that he's recording, that God is speaking, remember, right? This is not Habakkuk singing this little taunt song. God's lips, spoken through Habakkuk, passed on to us through the filter of this prophet musician. And in this song, there are five stanzas. And each stanza represents a woe, not like a whoa horse like a whoa like something bad like a disaster waiting to happen and we're going to walk through this song and its five stanzas beginning with verse um six and again remember god has transitioned from wait to warn what sorrow awaits you thieves now you will get what you deserve you become rich by extortion but how much longer can this go on Suddenly your debtors will take action. They will turn on you and take all you have while you stand trembling and helpless. Because you have plundered many nations, now all their survivors will plunder you. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. So what God is telling Habakkuk is that, yes, there is going to be this even more wicked conqueror and more wicked nation that's coming to torture you, torment you, conquer you, laugh at you, kill you, steal from you, all this stuff. But I will take care of them. They are going to get theirs. And he's foreshadowing Christ in the kingdom. And in this first woe that we'll call woe to thieves, right? Thieves steal what is not theirs. That's who a thief is. Thieves steal what is not theirs. And brothers and sisters, we can relate. How many of you all have something precious or someone precious and important to you that you feel like has been or is being stolen from you? I constantly feel that way. I feel like I'm in a constant battle for my children 
Because the world wants to steal their innocence, wants to steal their hearts, and wants to steal their lives. And I'm engaged in this battle saying, no, you can't have them. I feel like I'm in a constant battle for our church as well. For you being engaged in this spiritual battle to guard and protect you. That this is what the Bible says is one of my responsibilities as one of your pastors. To guard and shepherd the flock so that none of you would be lost. Right? There's this constant battle to guard our church as well from what the world and the enemy wants from you and with you. We all have precious things that we fight for so the world and the enemy don't steal from us. And the Lord says, I want to give you this comfort. Thieves are going to get what they deserve. More than that, I will someday not only punish these thieves, but I will take back everything that they have stolen and I will give it to my children. That what they hold for a moment, I will give to you for eternity as a part of the inheritance I have promised to you. That is what the Lord God says is going to happen when kingdom transplants the world. Verse 9. What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly? You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. But by the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you, and the beams in the ceilings echo the complaint. To those who gain by evil means and then try and set themselves up in high places where they believe they can be held unaccountable, be warned. Do you really believe there is anywhere you can go where you can escape God's judgment and God's wrath? I don't know about you. I can absolutely relate to this, and I hope you can as well. Because we live in a world where it's frustrating to watch evil people get away with doing evil things. And it seems like it happens all the time, right? Big banks can get away with causing economic disaster. And do you realize in the mortgage crisis that's been happening over the course of the past decade, do you know how many people who have launched this and started this and were responsible, at least in some way, shape, or form, for this mortgage crisis, do you know how many of them went to jail? None. We pay the price, and they get off scot-free. What kind of world is that that we have to live in? Pharmaceutical companies, they can go ahead and peddle drugs and get people addicted to opioids and raise prices arbitrarily whenever they want. And who pays the price? We do. And they make profits and they walk away scot-free. Companies and governments can get away with polluting our skies and squandering our natural resources. And who pays the price? We do. And who gets away with it? Who gets to profit from it? They do. So yes, we can absolutely relate to what God is saying to here to Habakkuk because we have this happening all the time. People who take advantage of others, steal, and then set themselves up on this mountaintop where they think they're untouchable. And what does God say about that? He says their lives are forfeit for what they have done because no one escapes the judgment of God. 
And for those of you who've been taken advantage of, take comfort in that, that they will get theirs because no one hides from God. Verse 12, what sorrow awaits you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption? Has not the Lord of heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? They work so hard, but all in vain. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. Woe to the monument builders. For those of you who try so hard to find meaning, to find uh, recognition in this life by building monuments, it's going to be turned to ash. Whether that monument is that big house, that fancy car, those fancy clothes, that business you started, or conquering nations, do you really think it's going to mean anything in the end? Do you really think or imagine that someday when you stand before God in heaven, he's going to come up to you and say, whoa, that's amazing. That's so cool to see how you work so hard to buy that big house and that fancy car and those fancy shoes and other things. That that's what God is going to commend you for? Is that what your life is all about? Is that monument, is that the monument you're going to be building with your hard work and what you're going to devote your life time and the best parts of your energy too it's all in vain here's how you should be investing your time your talents your energy your gifts your wealth advancing the glory of the lord that is what it's about that is what will last and that monument will be eternal be warned verse 15 what sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk you force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forests of Lebanon, now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. This warning is not about drunkenness. It's not about alcohol. It's about manipulation. That's what this warning is about. It's about people who use other people to get what they want. It's about people who manipulate the system in order to get what they want. It's about people who will use things in order to get to serve their own purposes and to get what they want. Are we not tired of that happening, of seeing politicians continue to work the system to accomplish nothing for nothing of any benefit to those who put them in office? Isn't it tiring to see how interest groups, the media continue to use outrage as a tool to advance their own agendas? Aren't we tired of bosses who take advantage of their employees? Aren't we tired of parents who take advantage of their children? Aren't we tired of children who take advantage of their parents? Isn't it enough? Aren't you tired of living in a world that glorifies the shameful, the things that should be kept hidden away that we bring out into the open and boast about and brag about? Enough. Aren't you tired of people who say that there is no God and you know what? Even if there is, I don't care. 
What is he going to do to me? Seriously. As Christians, we should be terrified for people like that. And the day is coming for those who are foolish, for those who are wicked, for those who are defiant, for those who refuse to call sin, sin. God will someday soon cut them down. Be warned. Don't be one of them. Verse 18. What good is an idol, the fifth woe? What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us. To the speechless stone images you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. You know, idolatry is one of those sins that's talked about throughout the scriptures, but we rarely talk about it in church because it seems like idolatry doesn't have the same meaning as it did for those back then. But that's not true. And in fact, it's really crazy because we could argue, I could argue that idolatry is actually our world's greatest sin. Idolatry, put simply, happens is a sin we commit whenever we put something in the place of God. That is what idolatry is. And the reason why that's so significant and the reason why that's so common is because we have been created, our very nature involves a desire to worship. Our very nature has this desire that says that I, there's something about life, right, that I want to devote myself to. Something that I want to give my life to that I believe gives life meaning. And at the end of the day, if we were to simplify this desire that we all have to devote ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, we will either give ourselves to the creator or to something that's been created. That's our only two choices. The creator, who's God, or something that has been created. And when we give ourselves, when we devote ourselves, when we give our devotion and our heart to the creator, to God, we become worshipers. When we give ourselves to something that's been created, money, people, anything else, we become idolaters. That's, it's as simple as that. And as a result, every single one of us, Christians included, Maybe even Christians more so because we're the ones who have been designated as God worshipers. We should all take the time to seriously and soberly meditate upon what it is that we are devoting our lives to. Not what we say we're devoting our lives to, but to examine what am I giving the best of my mind, my talents, my heart, my energy, my passions to. Is it God, or is it to something else that has somehow taken the place of God in my life? And as you meditate on this question, I want to challenge you to be brutally honest with yourself. To be brutally honest, because it's not like you're hiding the answer from God anyway. He already knows. The chapter ends with these words. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. But the Lord 
is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What is this passage saying? God gets the last word. That's what it is saying. God's saying all of these woes, all these things, I could summarize it this way. God gets the last word. Wickedness may rule for a time. Wicked people may triumph for a time. But God gets the last word. Look, every generation has had to face evil and wickedness, whether it's out there or in us. Every generation in history has had to not only deal with wickedness and evil and sin, but every generation in the history of the world has had faithful people of God needing to deal with the evil and wickedness of their time. There is nothing unique about our situation, our status as the faithful people of God facing and needing to confront the evil and wickedness of the world. That has happened to every generation in history. Because in every generation, there has been this clash, this battle, this struggle between culture and kingdom. And what has been true in light of that, in every generation throughout history, is in the midst of this clash between culture and kingdom, is that the only way things get better is if we focus on having a kingdom vision rather than a cultural vision. Does that make sense? That in this life we live, until God has his final say, the only way things get better is if our lives, the faithful people of God, have their eyes and hearts and lives set on a kingdom vision rather than a cultural one. And why is that important? Because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in this world. Too many of us have gotten caught in that trap. We have put our hope in this world, and so we are looking to this world to make us happy, joyful, satisfied, content. We're looking to, the, and when things this world don't satisfy us, we think there's something wrong with us, right? Or wrong with our relationship with God. And what God is reminding us over and over again is that's not what you're to look at. Our hope is not in this world. And you will know when you shifted and put your hope in this world when you start constantly feeling discontent, unhappy at your circumstances. That's how you're going to know that, oops, I slipped up. I put my hope in this world, but as a believer, my hope is not in this world. But in the world to come, and in the king who is coming, and the king who is not only here, but will someday fully reign and rule, that day is what we are living for. Until then, we have faith. Until that day comes, we have faith. And what is faith? Faith means we trust God until we see God. We trust God until we see him. Our hope is not in culture, but it is in Christ. And that's why for us, this is why we come to church. This is why we read the scriptures. Because God tells us that if you have a kingdom vision, and that's the only thing that's going to make this better for you. If you have a kingdom vision, then you have to know what it's like to live as a citizen of the kingdom. 
And that's why you read the word of God. That's why you meditate. That's why you pray. That's why you're part of a church, to be surrounded by others who say, yes, we are citizens of the same kingdom. And so we're going to live lives that set a good example, right? We're going to sharpen and encourage one another in faith, to be reminded in the way we live our lives, in teachings that we are learning, in the ways that we set examples for one another, what it means to be kingdom people and not worldly people. God has promised us that there's a time coming when the world will be conquered by kingdoms. God has promised us there's a time coming when the rulers and the wicked leaders of this world will be replaced by God on his throne. Until that time comes, faith. We live by faith, and we realize we have responsibility in this life. It's not to be passively waiting, twiddling our thumbs until he returns. We have a responsibility in this life. And our responsibility is to remain faithful, to remain hopeful, to remain worshipful. And oh yes, let's not forget that we also have a responsibility to share this hope we have with others. And this is why, church, right, when we talk about doing things together, when we talk about even having a time, as an example, after service today, to talk about the DR, I get it. I know that a lot of us are in this room and thinking, I've got a busy life. I've got so many other things going on and so many other things I need to do that it can be easy to carve out the things that aren't, quote, unquote, necessary. And I just say, you know what? We need these times with one another to be reminded of what God has done, is doing, and will do. And when we start cutting corners in our spiritual lives like that, then we're going to find our own spiritual faith and our own kingdom vision start to get cheapened. That's why we have these celebration times. This is why we're going to be a part of Saturate First Coast, right? On September 7th, we're going to get together as a church, and we're going to go ahead and hit every single home, not our church alone, right? But amongst the other 100 some odd churches, we're going to hit every single household in the city of Jacksonville and make sure they all have the opportunity to be exposed to the gospel of Christ. And we as a church get to be a part of that. This is why we put this in front of you. And I know, I get it, right? There's so many things right in front of us that can steal away our time and attention. They can be easy to get distracted from kingdom work. And I'm just saying, just as a reminder, before fall starts and all these students come back and everything starts getting crazy again, I just want to remind you, what are you living for, right? We're living for the kingdom, not for this world. There is a constant battle being engaged. Don't miss it. And this is the type of stuff that kingdom people do. God gets the last word. So next week, we're going to close out the book of Habakkuk with chapter 3. And I'm excited about being able to take you guys all through that and to be excited about what God is going to share with us as well. For those of you who want to read ahead, I can't stop you. In fact, I want to encourage you to go ahead, read chapter 3. I'll give you a little spoiler alert that... Uh, God's going to close out the book of Habakkuk with another song. How's that for a teaser? So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll go through that next week, and uh, we'll see. Maybe I'll sing. I actually thought about singing for you all today, but realized <laughs> nobody wants that. That might distract from kingdom living, so we won't do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for these saints, God, for the joy, opportunity, and privilege of being able to stand firm alongside some of the best people I've ever known in my life. 
women and men who have a heart and desire to passionately serve you, glorify you, and do so in the midst of everyday living. Women and men who have been a part of this battle and understand that we are in the midst of a spiritual war, and that war is not against the people of this world, but against the agendas and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, against the the battle for complacency and the battle to, to allow ourselves to slip into worldly thinking and slip into worldly life and to, to live in a way that's inconsistent with our identity in Christ. And Lord, I pray that as saints, we would wage war against those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms and the forces of darkness in this world and, and to stand firm, putting on the full armor of God and declaring that we are soldiers of the kingdom first. And this is how we choose to live alongside the people of the kingdom. And I thank you that we get to do that in this church. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, oh Lord. You are good. You are great. And uh, we are just so thankful to be able to have the privilege and honor and joy of being able to be called your children. In Jesus' name.